Amen. Good morning. Are we live here? We're live on Facebook. We're good to go. We're live here at Burnley Moran in real life. We're live on the podcast. So we are good to go. If there's any more ways invented of broadcasting this type of thing in the future, we'll be on it. Just let me know. YouTube or... Uh, Good morning. Welcome to the Blue Ridge Church. Uh, My name is Drew Mines, and our theme for the year is Grace-Driven Transformation. Uh, Really kind of continuing our goal to be transformed, to allow the Spirit to transform us more and more into God's likeness. And uh, we're actually closing in on finishing up Philippians. The book of Philippians, uh, a great book, uh, really just uh, unlike any other in the New Testament, a book, a letter on, on friendship and love from Paul to one of... The closest churches he had, the closest friends he had, the church in Philippi. And uh, the title of my lesson today is Overcoming Anxiety, Philippians 4.4. That's enough right there, right? Overcoming Anxiety, Philippians 4.4. But before we go to Philippians, actually hop over to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes one of actually my favorite passages. It's one of the times when Paul uh, gets so excited. I've been there before. Have you ever been there before? You get so excited, so you're in a discussion, and maybe you're having kind of a back and forth, and uh, at some point you just can't hold it in, and you just go on a a tirade. But it's not like anger-filled. It's really just like you want it. Here you got it. Here it is, the full encapsulation of what, it, what I'm trying to convey to you. And in 2 Corinthians 11, the church was challenging Paul and challenging his credibility. And in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul in verse 21 says, To my shame I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently. This is before he goes to prison three more times, by the way. I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And Paul goes in to explain how much he really does, despite all this, care for the church in Corinth. Now, this is not our text for today, but I want to point something out. As incredible as this passage is and as how much Paul's gone through, this happened, Paul wrote this before he wrote what we're going to read today. And so Paul had gone through all of this before what we're about to read in Philippians 4.4. Let's hop over there now. 
This is one of the more popular passages of one of the more well-known passages in the Bible, really beautifully written. Um, and we're going to sing a song to end service uh, that encapsulates a lot of what it's trying uh, to express to us, which I think will be uh, helpful for us to carry this on out the door in our lives as we go uh, back to them. But in Philippians 4.4, 4, uh, Paul says something incredible to the church in Philippi. Now remember, this is three years after what we just read. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. Once again, a little tidbit on discipling there. And the God of peace will be with you. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How is it that Paul can write this with 195 stripes on his back? How is it that Paul can write this going through what he's gone through, rejected by so many, alone, lonely, without food, without sleep, in pain, robbed, in danger, Actually, people threw stones at him to kill him, beaten with rods. Can you imagine being able to say something like this? I've learned the secret to be content in any situation. Now, when I first read this, I thought maybe he wrote this before 2 Corinthians. <laughs> maybe he wrote this, and then when 2 Corinthians goes down, he's kind of like, oh, man, I didn't realize how hard this would be. But it's not the case. Actually, he wrote that before. And Paul's saying here to the church in Philippi, listen, I've learned the secret. Now, we're going to talk today about what that secret is, okay? Because the reality is for all of us, and there's nothing more sure uh, than being tossed back and forth by the waves of life. For all of us, we're all going to go through some kind of anxiety, some kind of fear, some kind of stress or punishment. And life can look a lot like this. When you think about the ocean and the waves, uh, you ever go to the ocean and just see the waves come with such force and ferocity on the rocks? And you, know, you see even movies, or if you've actually been on a ship in a storm, uh, it's incredible how frightening it is and how you realize you're kind of just at the mercy of the ocean and uh, whatever happens happens but you can't really control it and the reality is for all of us uh, that we are going to go through some sort of anxiety some sort of fear um, and the question for today is what is the secret of contentment how does Paul get to a place where he knows the secret and the, qu the question I want to put before you is can we really live lives of contentment can we really do it can we really live it out? Or is this just another way that, you know, hey, we struggle, the world struggles, we're all going to struggle. But is there really a secret? And can you really, really know what it is to be at peace? 
Can you really know what it is to have a deep joy? And that's what we're going to be talking about today are those two things, peace and joy. Now, what are peace and joy? Uh, I'm going to talk about joy first. Uh, joy is not happiness, okay? Because the Bible does something interesting. The Bible constantly tells people who are sad to be joyful. So joy is not happiness. Happiness is what uh, comes from us uh, having the comfort of getting what we want. That's happiness. You want something, you get it, and you have the comfort from that desire. That's happiness. But that's up and down all over the place. But joy is more like, uh, when, you're, when you actually really have joy, it's more like being buoyed by God. I have a picture of a buoy here. Uh, but joy is something that's it's a deep uh, security. It's a deep assurance of knowing that you've got the only thing that really matters. And, and that's, that's what joy is. And so even though the difference, all the different things in life will come and attack you, having joy is to actually be, be uh, anchored in what is true. Now, a, a buoy, uh, if you've ever seen these things, uh, they're getting knocked around. They, go, they even get submerged sometimes. They, but they're always popping back up. They're always coming back up. It doesn't mean to have joy is not to be impervious to the struggles of life. But to have joy is to mean that you to, to know that you are unsinkable. That even though you get wet, even though you get hit, even though you get attacked, that you actually are unsinkable. And that's the goal of Satan, by the way. And one of the challenges here this morning as we talk about joy and as we talk about peace. And I do think it is quite helpful to think of joy as a buoy, um, not only because buoy is a great fun word to say, um, but. If you think about joy, we can often think, I'm not joyful. Well, really what you're saying is you're sad, but are you joyful? Have you lost this? And the opposite of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. It means having nothing to fall back on. It means having nothing to pop you back up, nothing to bring you up back to the surface. To be in despair is the opposite of joy. But I want to encourage us this morning as we talk about joy, as we talk about peace, to really know the enemy out there. You know, John chapter 10, 28, if you're taking notes this morning, jot down John 10, 28. Jesus says, listen, you are in God's hand and no one can pluck you from God's hand. So Satan and the enemies of this, of, our, of us as Christians, they realize one thing. What do they realize? They cannot take your salvation. They cannot touch you. They cannot take you away from God. They can't do it. So what, what is their plan? To destroy your peace. To destroy your joy. That is their goal. That is the goal of the world is to be able to take these things out. And I want to be able to name the enemies today. Because we've got to know who the enemies are. Uh, if we're really going to defend ourselves against the waves uh, of their attacks. Uh, and the three enemies uh, are... And we actually, I think as people can focus on one of these. People tend to focus on one instead of all three. But the three enemies are uh, the world the flesh, and Satan. And we'll talk more about those later, but I do think it's good for us to mention those now, that those are the real enemies. The flesh, uh, the world, and Satan. I think one of the reasons that disciples get so downcast and depressed is that they're surprised that they're downcast and depressed. I think like a third or a quarter of all people who, are, are, who go through anxiety are actually going through something legitimate. Uh, they have a loved one torn away from them. In life, someone dies. It's one of the worst things that could happen, right? Is a loved one taken away from you. Uh, I think about a third of the time, something legitimately discouraging, something really traumatic happens. I think the other two thirds of the time, 
is that we are surprised that we are depressed. We're depressed that we're depressed. We're anxious that we're anxious. Uh, and we're scared that we're scared. You know, like, and I think a, a part of that is, is expectations. You go, going into becoming a disciple, what are your expectations? Is it that I shouldn't have to be going through this? I don't deserve this. This is not what, the way it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be easy. And that your expectations actually are, what, are off. And expectations matter quite a bit, right? Uh, if we all were to go to a movie today and I were to say, this is the best movie you'll ever see. Maybe coming out of the movie, you might go, that was okay. But if we see the same exact movie, and before I say, this is the worst movie you'll ever see, and you come out going, that was actually pretty good. It's the same movie, right? It's the same movie, but what happened is your expectations were different. And we have to really look at our expectations and ask ourselves, what are our expectations of what it means to be a Christian? Because the reality is, is that there are still enemies out there. You have enemies. In fact, you have more enemies for those who have repented and been baptized. You have more enemies now than you did before you were a Christian. You have more. When you were a non-Christian, your one enemy was God. Before you decided to repent and be baptized, when you were dead in your sins, in the ways you used to walk, according to the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that your one enemy was, was Jesus. Your one enemy was God. Now, the good thing about that is that God is a gracious God and a loving God. And he's not a God that's going to try. He's actually a God that's trying to try to love you and take care of you. Imagine it like this. There used to be this, this video uh, of this cat. And the cat. You ever try to get a cat down from a tree and uh, they don't want help? Uh, you know, they don't want to come down. And then there's always like one person who has to like struggle with the cat. And there's always one person who kind of says, even though I'm going to get scratched, even though they're going to probably bite me, I'm going to take this cat down from the tree. And that's really what, what it is to, for God. It's God's like, okay, I'm a loving God. Even though I'm, you view me as your enemy, I'm going to still help you. I'm going to still take all your scratches and all your bite marks, and I'm going to take all the pain that comes along with trying to help you because I love you. That's your one enemy. Now, God is a good God. It doesn't mean he's inferior, though, to these enemies. When you become a disciple, you actually have more enemies, not greater enemies, not more powerful enemies, but you have more. You have more people out there. You have the world, you have Satan, and you have your flesh that are going to come for you. And we cannot be surprised, church. That's a big part of, I think, the reason we struggle so much. Um, A lot of us go through the Bible study series that we actually do with people to help them get a good sense of what it is to follow Christ. And a lot of people, after they get baptized within the first year, a lot of people fall away because they're surprised. They're like, I thought you said this was going to be easy stuff. I thought you said that I was going to get to marry whoever I want and everything was going to go my way and it was going to... Hey, listen, God's going to work in your life. Actually, Stephen read a great passage. God's going to work for your good. He is. doesn't mean, though, that the waves aren't still going to come. The question is, is do you have an anchor? Do you have a buoy that's going to help you be unsinkable? Those attacks are still going to come if you're in the world. But the difference is now is that we cannot let Satan uh, adjust our expectations. Think about going into a war with the wrong expectations. It would kill you. Think about going into a war thinking, they probably have 5,000 men. So let's bring, I don't know, like six, just to cover our bases. And you show up to the battlefield and they have 100,000. Your expectations are going to be the death of you in that scenario, right? They'll kill you. But you also can't overestimate. you got to have a good sense of what's coming your way. And we have to be vigilant, church, that the reality is, is that we have enemies out there who want to attack our joy and attack our peace. And it's effective in a lot of ways. Satan's very effective in how he attacks us. 
And I'd say like 95% of the reason that people walk away is because they're angry at God for some difficulty or they're angry at one of you for some difficulty in their lives or they're angry at me or they're angry at people or they're just angry at in general about what happened to them in their life. And they, their, their peace and their, their security, their joy is attacked. And we have to be aware of this because these attacks on peace and joy are inevitable. And the, accus- the accusations will come. They will come. Even for me, this week's been an especially difficult week for me. And the accusations came this week uh, uh, in a heavy flow. Okay, It was like a lot, probably mostly from myself, uh, mostly from my flesh, but also from other people. And when those accus- accusations come, uh, it's difficult. Uh, and then you've, you really got really to turn to what you're going to fall back on. What are you going to fall back on? And all of us do this, by the way. Um, perhaps you were working uh, at your job and you did a really poor job on a project and your boss says you didn't do well on this project. You really did, you, you, you are not a good project worker, whatever, you know, make it work. And uh, perhaps you were discouraged, but you thought, you know, last year I got an award for a project, so I know I'm good at this stuff. Well, what'd you do? You fell back on something deeper to help you face those facts and to help you not, you know, be hopeless. Uh, basically, we're always doing this. We're, trying, we're, we're picking something to fall back on deeper that helps you deal with that particular suffering. Now, a lot of times, it's in a worldly way. I've often told the story about my friend who lost at risk and then said, at least I have a girlfriend, as he walked off, right? <laughs> well, what was he doing in that case? He was, in, in his mind, he was falling on, back on something deeper to help him deal with that trivial loss in that board game, right? But we all do this. We all do this. The problem is, is that when we... When we, what are we falling back on, and is it really going to be able to be steady, consistent, and is it going to be able to help us stay at the surface? Because most things, like having a girlfriend, are subject to inevitable uh, oscillation. They will change. They will change. All these things. Even having to put your hope in your own virtue, to hope in your own performance, hope in your family, these things will let you down. They will always let you down. They are pro- it's, by definition, they will not make you happy. And you can keep changing your circumstances or you can readjust what is buoying you. What is your anchor? Now, a lot of you today, uh, a lot of you probably are thinking, man, like, I, I don't really feel that. It's, and it's difficult. I had a week where it was put to the test this week. And I was writing this lesson and I thought, man, I can't preach what, I'm, what I can't practice. I got to go to God here. And we'll look at what that really means. And it can be really difficult because we live in a world where the standard of what uh, I shouldn't have to go through is getting higher. Yes. So children have more and more and more available at their fingertips, right? And every generation will have more and more and more. Your kids will have more, right? Uh, assuming things go as they do. And so, of course, you're going to think, I, I shouldn't have to go through this. You know, when I was, uh, I haven't been alive that long. I mean, I'm pushing 30 here. But when I was uh, in college 10 years ago and I studied the Bible with people, the discipleship study is a study that's very much like deny yourself, carry your cross. You know, here are things that what it is to actually do uh, and you need to do these things. That study was not really a problem 10 years ago. Nowadays, it's tough. A lot of college students say, I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to go through that. I shouldn't. I mean, I've actually seen a change. They're actually pushing it away more and more of I shouldn't. And the expectations are I shouldn't have to go through anything that's difficult. And it's amazing how even our our world isn't, isn't consistent. Our world isn't a buoy. Yeah. You can put your hope in the world, but that will change. Society will change. The opposite of joy is despair or hopelessness. Joy, joy does not mean we're impervious to suffering. It means we are unsinkable. How about peace, though? The word here, I love this passage because it says the peace of God, 
will guard your heart and mind. So notice two things. One, how in the world will peace guard? The word guard there is garrison. Peace will garrison your heart. Uh, Garrison is like a, a military fortification. So peace will guard your heart and your mind. So differentiation, heart, mind. It's not just one or the other. It's both, actually. It's both the seat of your emotion, but also the seat of your intellect and your thinking. But peace will guard you. Now, what is peace? A lot of people uh, you know, think the opposite of peace uh, you know, is any number of things. Uh, but the opposite of peace is anxiety. When we are anxious and we don't trust in the garrison to protect us, uh, when we don't trust in the fortification to actually protect us, we are not at peace. To be at peace is to be calm and to feel protected. Are you calm and do you feel protected by God? Stephen mentioned this earlier, when we can, we can struggle to really trust in, that, in God's plan for us, we lose our peace. Uh, the world does this in an interesting way. If you ever want to, go to Barnes & Noble and walk by the, uh, like the psychology section or the anxiety section. The world is trying to deal with anxiety all the time. I mean, I'm sure your workplace has give, already given you a seminar on it. You can go and they'll pay you know, thousands of dollars to help you deal with anxiety. It's a bigger and bigger and bigger problem in our world. Depression's a bigger, bigger, bigger problem in our world. But the world tells you to deal with peace, to deal, or deal with anxiety, rather, uh, by bracketing out your problems. Don't think about those things. If you were to go to that Barnes & Noble book section, you'd probably find books on thought control techniques, probably relaxation techniques, and probably work-rest balance. It wouldn't really be about bringing anything or anyone into your life. It'd be about pushing it out. Don't think about that. Don't, it's all technique, right? It's all, don't, don't focus on that. But here's the thing about this passage is Christian peace is not about bracketing out. It's about bracketing in. Christian peace is about bringing God into your life. The peace of God is not the absence of some thoughts, but the presence of God himself. The presence of God himself. He is your fortification. Christian peace is not avoiding the facts, but having something in your life that allows you to triumph over those facts. God actually being... So what you're doing when you have a Christian peace is you actually realize the facts of your struggle. Okay, we have no money. The kids are going nuts. Uh, my marriage is falling apart. And uh, I haven't been... I haven't really... Don't, don't think I've really been a, uh, living like a Christian in years. Those are all very real accusations. And you can go to that and say, okay, just don't think about it. Don't think about it. Uh, go do something else. Go watch a movie. Go, go relax. Go meditate. Go push these things out of my mind. But Christian peace says, no, actually face those facts. But bring God into your th- thought process. Bring Jesus alongside your feelings. Actually bring God into this. What does God think about this? Have you reminded yourself of God's position on this? How does God feel about you, even amongst all this? That's what it is to actually have a Christian peace. And that is the opposite of what the world's going to tell you. The world's not going to... I dare you to find a book that says, okay, if you're struggling with anxiety, let's think about all the things that are troubling you and just uh, you know, focus on them and then think about your purpose in life and then think about the cosmic uh, significance uh, and why we're here and, and about the vast universe. No, that's going to freak everybody out and cause them to get even more depressed, right? And so, but actually Jesus says, no, we can contemplate all that if you want. As long as God's in the picture and God's present, you will, here's the trick, feel calm and protected because you're, you're viewing these things alongside Jesus. When something terrible happens, the first thing we can feel is unprotected, vulnerable, and anxious. This is one of the things that goes very quickly is our peace. 
Uh, we're not at peace. We try to fix it. We try to do it. We try to attack others. Uh, we try to distract ourselves. We, we separate ourselves from the church because, uh, you know, we want to just not have to deal with things. We avoid certain conversations. We avoid people. We avoid difficulties. But that's, that's the thing is that's not going to bring about peace. The world has a couple answers for peace. They're called apathy and cynicism. Someone in the world may say, I'm at peace about it. But what they're really saying is, no, I've just become cynical about the world. I've just actually given up on trusting people. I've given up on relationships. I've given up on trying to find a guy or a girl who's really going to love me. I've given up just even trying. It's apathy. It's not peace. It's cynicism. You just become a skeptic. That's not peace. Peace is being able to face the reality, but also to have God in the picture so that your behavior, you can continue to open your heart. Not shut it down and say, I'm at peace. No, no, you're just... You're just a cynical curmudgeon. You know, you're not at peace. It's a good word, curmudgeon. <laughs> so the question of this morning, church, is do you have this kind of peace and do you have this kind of joy? And we've got to talk about how do we really do this, okay? What is it that the passage says that we can really do this? And do you believe that you can have this kind of peace? Do you believe you can have this kind of joy? Do you really believe that's the first step? We've got to actually believe it. Paul says incredible things here. And I want to give out three quick points. This is the opposites, by the way. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. The opposite of peace is anxiety. I think it's good that we actually define these in a right way. It's not happiness, right? Here are the things that can attack us. We talked about the world, the flesh, and Satan. I'll get to my three points in a second. I think it's good. I didn't flesh these out yet, pun intended. And the world <laughs> groans. Ugh. What are these things? Anybody know what these things are? The world is an enemy. Sometimes we think that only one of these things is that some people think Satan is the enemy of everything. It tends to be supernatural people like Satan's behind everything. Some people think the flesh is the enemy of everything and they just tell you to obey, 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 fix it, fix it, self-improvement, fix it, obey, 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 fix, obey, obey the Bible and you will be fine. Uh, not, not wrong, but isolated wrong. Um, and some people just say, it's all the world. We live in a crazy world. We live in a weird country. God's left America and it's the world's fault. And Okay, but all three of these things in isolation have a negative truth, but they're all a reality that we've got to be aware of. The world basically means, in the Bible, worldliness means uh, secularness or nowism. The idea that what people are doing now will save you. And this is a real risk, a real enemy of ours, to let, oh, what people are doing now or what's really in vogue now or what people are saying is cool now in this time in history is going to be for the best. That's an enemy of God. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that all those things are wrong, but are you viewing these things alongside Christ, or are you thinking that just because something is, is you know, hip to the jive now, it's going to save you? If something is really, really going to bring you peace and truth, just because it's happening now, right? And so just because a cool YouTube uh, video came out about, have you ever considered that maybe we're all, just because it's happening now doesn't mean it's true, okay? We have to actually be able to distinguish between what's happening now and what, what God is saying. Second thing is the flesh. This is a big one, flesh. The NIV, I don't think they've gone back to translating it flesh or not, but it used to say sinful nature. Flesh, sarks, same thing. Now, I'm going to tell you about my flesh, okay? Before I was a disciple, uh, you know, one of the things I, I struggled with in my flesh was power. I had, I had interests uh, in girls, not because I really wanted to date them or was attracted to them. I just wanted to prove that I could, in fact, gain her affection that I could actually get her to laugh. I could say the right thing. I could, I could work it. And the second she might show affection to me, I was disinterested because I got what I wanted. It actually was my pride. 
I, was, I wanted to dominate. I wanted to win. I, a very competitive person. Always wanted to win, wanted to dominate. Now, when I became a disciple, February 21st, 2003, that flesh went away. I never struggled with it ever again. No. <laughs> My flesh actually became religious. And instead of those things, I would show up in a Bible study and talk the whole time and dominate and edge brothers out and think my perspective was the best and strongest. And I would still, my flesh is still there, but it just my flesh got religious. And so we think, oh, I've, I've been baptized. I'm good. No, you're actually, your flesh is still there. You're still at war with your flesh. The Holy Spirit is still, you have the Holy Spirit now, so you've got to listen to the Spirit and not listen to your flesh. But the flesh is still stinking real. And you've got to see that reality. Otherwise, Satan will still attack you through the flesh. And finally, Satan, that's just another word for accuser. When we say Satan in the Bible, it's just accuser. You always know it's Satan if the sentence begins with, if you were really a Christian, if you really loved God, if God really loved you. He's the accuser. He does it with Adam and Eve. He does it with Jesus. If you were really a Christian, wouldn't you have baptize somebody by now you really aren't if you were really a good father wouldn't don't you think your son would be a christian if you were and these are real and you can feel this and satan attacks you you know i feel i felt that this week you know like if you were if you were really uh uh you know a good minister you'd you'd have known the answer to that situation you would have worked harder you know if if you really were loving then this 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 friend wouldn't be struggling or having a hard time and i feel that and when those accusations come uh, it can really drive me to actually try to cope in a worldly way instead of actually bring those things to Jesus. But all these things are usually the answer, right? We have to be aware of the world. We have to be aware of the flesh. That's why we have discipling. That's why we get in D groups and we try to talk to each other. And after you get baptized, that's, that's day one. It ain't over. It's just getting started. You got 80 more years to go if you're lucky, maybe 50. You got a long way to go here. And that flesh uh, has to continually be put to death. And Satan's not going to stop coming after you. And if Satan exists, and I believe he does, does it make more sense for him to attack you when you're one of his or one of his enemies? No, it makes more sense for him to bring the heat after you become a disciple. After you become one of God's chosen, that's when Satan turns up the heat. And so we got to be aware the expectations are real. They're going to come for us. But they can never pluck us out of God's hand. They can never take away our salvation. They can never take away what God's given us or the promises of God. Three quick practicals, okay, on how... We can do this. Hopefully we've been made aware of the problem. Hopefully we see the reality of the situation. And now we've got to respond in kind and really repent. And Bobby prayed and did the welcome and said, you know, when we get challenged, we've got to respond. So he set me up. So now I've got to challenge you guys, okay? We talk about being buoyed and talk about really actually uh, withstanding the storms of life. The first point is thinking. Look at this passage. It says, think about such things, right? Whatever is true, noble, or right. First three words, true, noble, or right. When you think of what is true, noble, or right, what comes to mind? Paul almost always, when he writes, uses these three words to talk about doctrine, to talk about scripture, to talk about Jesus, the truth. What is doctrine? Think about the true things of God. Now, jot this down. This is pretty awesome. Psalm 4211. It says, why, O my soul, this is David, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Now, what's David doing? He's talking to himself. That's what he's doing. And isn't it interesting? A lot of times we listen to ourselves, but we don't talk to ourselves. We listen to our feelings. We listen to our insecurities. We listen to our anger, our fear, our rage. But we don't say, soul, what are you doing? Why are you downcast? Why are you, where's your, put your hope in God. 
David's actually responding. He's actually saying, no, this, this, I know what's going on in my soul, but we, he's actually talking to himself. He's not just letting it stay there. He's actually, he's not just also just having a conversation with himself like, you know, hey, how was your week? Not that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> or I heard a funny story, you know, but not that kind of talk to yourself. But do we actually have a dialogue with ourselves of, nope, my hope's in God. I cannot let this stand. First point is thinking. Our thoughts matter. We know this. Second point is thanking. Okay. Look at how powerful this is in verse six. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, what does it mean to present a request to God with thanksgiving? I thought you're supposed to present a request and then he gives it to you. And now I'm thankful. Now I'm grateful. What does it mean to actually ask God with thanksgiving? And that, I believe, is the secret of this challenge. We got to thank God even as we make our requests. We got to have a heart of gratitude that says, even if I don't get this thing, I ain't going nowhere. Even if I don't get this thing I want, I still trust. Actually, the scripture I was going to mention is the one that Jesus, uh, um, not Jesus, actually, it's a great um, slip, but Stephen mentioned uh, in Romans 8. The one that uh, Stephen mentions in Romans 8 is, and we know that uh, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We actually can ask God with gratitude, even though, and we can trust, even though I don't get this thing, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be fine. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, who say, uh, we, you can put us in the furnace and burn us alive if you want, and we know God can save us. But even if he doesn't, um, we just want you to know that we're not going to bow down to your gods. Right? There's still a trust there, even if God decides not to give me this. And we can think, I remember in college, I had this huge crush on this girl. And I thought, man, I just like her so much. If I just pray with as, like, as hard as I can, then God will have to give me her, right? I mean, it's, the one, it's the girl I'm going to marry. It has to be her, right? No, it was not her, right? And it's not this beautiful woman sitting here right before me today, smiling. Uh, but the thing is, when we pray, when we pray, we got to be able to trust that if we knew all that God knows, uh, he would give us all that we asked for and more. But God knows things that we don't know. God knew that that's not the woman for me. I didn't know that. But I had to trust, even if this is not your will, it's going to be fine. Not even just fine. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be actually even better than I could ask or imagine. And in that case, I'm very grateful for what occurred there. But when we ask God for things, are we grateful or are we waiting for him to respond and give us what we want and then receiving gratitude? This is a huge key. Last point is loving. Look at the last few words. The first few words are all about true, noble, right. And you're like, oh, that's all just very mental and intellectual, right? Well, but also he says, hold on, what's admirable? Hold on, lovely, pure, excellent, praiseworthy. It's not enough just to think on the things of God. It's not enough just to think about the right things. We've got to love the right things. We've got to actually put our, set our hearts there. You know, a lot of us, we can put our minds there. But do we put our hearts there? What do you give your affection to? What do you give your... Now, I'm talking about affection. You know, maybe it is a relationship with a girl or a guy. You're affectionate with them. Maybe it's outside, you know, marriage. Maybe it's just a relationship. Maybe it's just a friend. But you're giving them your affection. You're giving them your feelings. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your, you know, any number of things. Maybe it's outside your marriage. There's a relationship with someone at work that you're giving your feelings to, giving your affections to. And it could be little. It could just be a little flirtatious text or a little joke or, you know, or a laugh. Or it could even be something really, it could be something small. But to whom do you give your affections? Because if we give our affections to those things, uh, it's like a tossing sea. 
Uh, it's not enough to put our mind on God. Oh, I had my quiet time and I thought about it. Where's your heart going the rest of the day? Where's your affection going? Do you even want to be here right now? Do you want to leave? Do you want me to wrap up so you can go home? Like, I'm sick. Where's your affection? Where's your heart? Do you even like the people in your family group? Do you, do you have any, any affection for them? Do you have any affection for the people in your small group? Do you have any affection for the people God's put in your life? Do you, how do you feel when you go to God? This is a really, really, really big deal because Paul here does something incredible. He uses the exact same words that Greek philosophers would use. Greek philosophers believed that there was nothing in life, especially Stoics, that you could give your um, affections to that wouldn't hurt you. And so they said the only thing to give your affections to is your own virtue. So give your affections only to your own self and you'll never be hurt. That was kind of their thing. And so Paul's actually using the exact same language and then later says, hold on, but I got the secret. I got the secret, and it's, and it's not because I've put all this in myself. It's not because I've just put it in my own virtue. I've actually had to put that in God. Um, Augustine has a couple great quotes about this. How can we really be consistent like the buoy? How can we really be solid? And Augustine says, only love of the immutable can bring tranquility. What does that mean? Only love of the unchanging. There's only one thing that's unchanging, one person that's unchanging. God has never changed. He has loved you with a steadfast integrity since the beginning of time and made manifest in his, the sacrifice of his son, Christ Jesus. By you putting your affections there can only you find true tranquility, true peace, not any of these other things. And it's so easy to. It's so easy to say that and then financial issues come up and you're right back to where you were. But the question is, is are you bringing God back into this? Augustine says, only God only God." Can, uh, is the place of peace that cannot be disturbed. And now let's wrap up. What is all this about? How can we really have a joy? How can we really have a peace? It doesn't mean the absence of struggles because the buoy does get wet. The buoy does get hit, but it just means it's unsinkable. And in Isaiah 57, verse 20, it says, but the wicked are like to- the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God. For the wicked. Now, at first, that just sounds like, okay, the wicked people got it coming. But what's he saying? This is about consequences. The wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There's no peace for the wicked. So here's the thing is, we've lived lives full of consequences. We've lived lives full of mire and mud. We've been kicking up mire and mud since day one. And the secret, what is the secret? I believe the secret is that God made him who had no sin to be sin for you so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That God didn't make Jesus actually sin. He, turned, he made Jesus have the consequences of our sin. He made Jesus have your mire, your mud, the consequences of all you've done so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Uh, you know, Bill Lane's a commentator on the book of Mark. You know how Jesus, when he dies, he says he cries out. Uh, Bill Lane writes, Crucified criminals usually suffered complete exhaustion and for long periods were unconscious before they died. The stark realism of Mark's account describes a sudden, violent death. The cry of dereliction expresses unfathomable pain. When Jesus went to the cross... He went through something that nobody else did. It wasn't just every other criminal just passed out because they were so exhausted and then died. Jesus cries out, Aloy, Aloy, Lama Sabachthani, God, where are you? 
And the centurion standing there said, surely this man was the son of God. He had seen nothing like that before. He cried out in unfathomable pain that Jesus took on your muck, your mire. He took on the consequences of your life. Why? So that when Satan comes knocking and accuses you and says, God doesn't really love you, you can say, no, he does love me. Haven't you seen Jesus on the cross? And Satan says, you're not really saved. No, I am saved. Haven't you seen what the Bible says? Haven't you seen that it's by grace we are saved? Haven't you seen Acts 2.38? The repent and be baptized and be the forgiveness of sins. And when the world says, you guys got it wrong, we got it right, you can say, forget that. You're going to be wrong in 20 years, and we're still going to have scripture. This has not changed in 2,000 years, and it won't change in 2,000 more years. So you can have your heresy. You can have your new branch of Christianity. It'll fade. It will not last. This is forever. And so we actually have the perfect anchor, the perfect buoy, to be able to withstand the waves of this world. We have all that we need and more in Jesus. And to go to him in these times is of utmost importance because the reality is that our peace and our joy will be attacked. Uh, we're going to close out with a song. And uh, the man who wrote this song uh, in 1873 uh, had a friend who was preaching in England. Uh, and he sent his family to go ahead of him because he had some work to do in Chicago. He sent them on ahead to England to hear his friend um, preach. Well, on the way, there was a shipwreck, and his wife and four daughters went down with the ship. Uh, his, they had four daughters, 11, 9, 5, and 2. Four daughters uh, go down uh, with the ship, and um, Horatio Spafford, the writer, from his wife gets back a telegram that says just two words, saved alone. That all four girls had died in that shipwreck. A few years before that, um, Horatio lost his entire capital in the Great Chicago Fire. Um, and Horatio, Gay, uh, Horatio Spafford wrote this, um, this song, It Is Well With My Soul. And he wrote this song uh, within six months of this tragedy happening. And he actually took a ship to England to meet up with his wife, Anna. And uh, on the way to meet Anna, after losing all that he had with his money, but really more so his four beautiful daughters, 11, five, 11 9, 5, and 2, he wrote this song, It Is Well With My Soul. And the song goes, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. So let's overcome anxiety, church, not with self-improvement, but with remembering the true manifestation of God's love, which was sending his son to die for us. And we can do this together. And we can all be buoyed uh, by uh, joy. We can be garrisoned with peace. And as we sing this song together, let's focus on the words and allow the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Go down here with your life.